Amen. As you're being seated this morning, let me invite you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be in the 14th verse. But while you're turning there, go ahead and find Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Exodus, the second book of the Bible is where we'll be this morning. Genesis uh, chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 20 verse 14. We're working our way through the Ten Commandments. We find ourselves this morning in the Seventh Commandment. The Seventh Commandment, which is one sentence. It's pretty straightforward. It's, it's straight ahead. In fact, it's there on the screen. You shall not commit adultery. Now, as we work our way through the Ten Commandments, let me just remind you that we're in the second part of those commandments. In the first part, found in Commandments 1 through 4, they are vertical commandments. They deal with our relationship with God. They're very personal in many ways, although the community is involved. They deal with our relationship and our view and our walk with God uh, between us and Him. So we have the idea of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You have to choose the one true faithful God, or you shall not make for yourself an idol. You must worship him the right way in the way that he has accorded in his word. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You must bring holiness and reverence and righteousness to his name as a witness for him. And then that fourth commandment, you shall uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, setting aside time of worship together. And then we transition into what's known as the second part of the Ten Commandments where they're relational. If the first four are vertical, these are horizontal. They deal with the community. They deal with relationships. Uh, Those would be found in the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. That's relational. Or the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. And now we find ourselves in the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now let me say to those of you that are here this morning and those of you that are watching online at Elkdale, we send out a Friday email to anybody who would like to sign up to hear what's going on. And and in that email, I made sure to be clear with you that in the topic today, we're going to be discussing marriage and sexual relations. And so if you're watching at home and you have little ones in the room, then you want to be aware of that. Now we find ourselves in this commandment. Now, There is no more relational place to start than in the home. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Two out of the ten commandments deal directly with the home. God must have a purpose and a plan and a priority for the way in which our houses ethically, morally walk with Him. And so we find this in the ten commandments. Now, we must say this before we go any Further, while the first four commandments are relational to the Lord, they are vertical, they are between us and Him, and the final six commandments are relational, we should state that all of the commandments have the same weight because they come from the mouth of God. They all bear the same priority when it comes to obeying. You may say in in, uh, commandment one, that God is your God, but then you break commandment six, seventh, or eight, and you say, well, these are lesser commandments. That is not so, brothers and sisters. They are all the words of God. They are all His ten rules to us. But we should note this. While they carry the same weight, they certainly have an order which is important. What I mean by that is simply this. You will not have a right relationship between husband and wife or children and family. You won't have a right relationship with community if you don't have a right relationship with God. 
So we have to get the first four correct. We have to get our life right with the Lord in order to live out the others. We must love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, with that being said, we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now, on the surface level, just reading it, it's a pretty simple, straightforward commandment. It is the idea that adultery is any sexual relationship that you have outside the covenant of you and your spouse. Adultery is to bring a third person into a two-person relationship. It is to break this commandment. It is a straightforward commandment. But for us to feel the weight and understand the commandment, we must do two things. One, we must understand why God has such a high view of marriage And two, we must see where this commandment is applied in the rest of Scripture. Because here's what I hope you will hear when we leave today. I hope you will hear that just because you don't have or have not physically walked out of your marriage to another person, there's still a lot more to this commandment. There's still a lot more call to this idea. And before we dive into it, I want to say this. There is no doubt in my mind, hear me now, let me be clear. There is no doubt in my mind that as we walk through this passage and we look at the sexual ethic of the Bible, there is no doubt in my mind that on some level, every person, adult, in this room has broken the sexual ethic of the commandments of the Bible. And so want us to just go ahead and, and confess that up front, and then I want you to hear me say this. By the time we get to the end, I hope that our guilt and our shame and our brokenness is all laid at the wonderful feet of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That by His grace, He will change us from those who have hearts that are wicked to those that have been purchased and bought and redeemed by Him. So whatever you bring to this topic, let us know that Christ has called us to be new creations. Let's pray together. Father, help us now understand what it means, Lord, Uh, to have a sexual ethic that is honorable to you. Lord, help us to understand what it means when Exodus tells us do not commit adultery. Show us how it's more than just a a physical contact with someone outside of our marriage. How you, you, Father, even in the New Testament, you raise this even higher to not just what we do with our hands, but what we do with our hearts. Father, teach us from your word how you desire us to walk and live in our marriages, in our relationships. Father, I pray right now as we walk through this text together that that there are going to be those that have had the scars of adultery in their past. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you'd remind them of your grace, that those who have confessed their sins, that you are just and true to forgive them, and that, Father, you have washed them clean, remembering them no more. So, Lord, I pray that even as Satan will tempt us to wallow in our scars, that you remind us of your grace. Lord, I pray right now for the man or woman, the teenager, Lord, who's caught in sexual sin. They are tempted and tangled and trapped. Father, they are trying to to live for you and live in the flesh. And Lord, it it is a disastrous place in which they find themselves. I pray this morning that through the clarity of the word and the power of your spirit, you would convict. Sin would be confessed. And Lord, your power would transform us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 is one sentence. 
In fact, it's only just a few words in the Hebrew. You shall not commit adultery. I told you earlier, it's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of gray area in what exactly it means. But for us to understand why this commandment was given to the nation of Israel after they came out of the Exodus, for them to understand why it's so important, we have to understand what God's view of marriage is. For us to understand why adultery is such an evil thing to the Lord, in fact, in the Old Testament, it would be punishable by death. Why he was so serious about it, why this made the top 10 list of commandments is because God has ordained and designed marriage for a purpose. And so for us to obey the seventh commandment, we must have a biblical view of marriage. We must start there. So you have your Bible open to Genesis chapter two, and let us do a working idea, a working idea of what does it mean? Why did God design marriage? What is the purpose of marriage. Now, there's a lot of places in Scripture that speak to marriage. God is not silent on this topic. We could look at Ephesians 5. We could look in the writings of the Apostle Peter where he talks about guarding yourselves from sexual sin or Paul deals with it there. We could look at examples in the Old Testament where they're wedded to one another. We could read Song of Solomon to find about the love in a marriage. But we want to find what God intended. So we go all the way back to the original in the Garden of Eden where God places Adam and Eve and forms the first marriage, the first ceremony, the first relationship. And I would submit to you simply this, marriage is as old as Edom and before the fall. It goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to the beginning. It's the first relationship God established outside the relationship of him with mankind. It was before the church. It was before the nation of Israel. It's before governments and societies. It's before moms and children or fathers and children. It is the premier relationship that God made among mankind. And so we have to understand the purpose of marriage in order to fill the weight of the commandment. So let's do that together. Hopefully, this will encourage your marriage. This will strengthen you along that way. If you are here this morning and you're not married yet, this will give you a signpost of what to look for in marriage. If you have, uh, you're here this morning and you say, well, my spouse is with the Lord, or I'm, I'm single at this point, then this will give you a cultural definition, excuse me, a biblical definition in order to face the culture. So let's do it together. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, let us find a biblical view of marriage. Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I have never read more truer words in all of my life. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creatures, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds and of the heavens and to all the beasts of the field. But Adam, there was, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he, took, while he was asleep, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, verse 23, this is at last bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here we have the first marriage ceremony, the very creation of marriage before sin entered the world. God designed marriage before there was ever evil. God made it 
this way. So what do we learn as the purpose of marriage from this passage of Scripture? Well, it's interesting that we learn a couple of things, and I'll give them to you quickly this morning. First, we learn that marriage is a partnership. We learn that God designed marriage in order to make it a partnership, that you are to join together with your spouse in order to do more for the glory of the kingdom than you could do alone. In fact, we see that in the text. If you look along about verse 19 there in Genesis chapter 2, it says that God shared his authority with Adam, which means God let Adam be in charge of naming the animals. He shared his authority as creator and ruler. He did not have to do this But he loved Adam. He formed Adam out of his grace. He made Adam with his own hands. And so he shares his authority. And so Adam is in charge of naming the animals. And so he begins to do this. There's an elephant. There's a cow. There's a mosquito. Lord, are you sure about mosquitoes, right? He's, come on people. He's naming the animals, right? He's naming them. And then the Bible says in Genesis there in chapter two, there was not a helper fit for Adam. He surveyed all of creation. He said, I don't think my helper is going to be the elephant. I'm not sure I'm going to cuddle with the porcupine. I don't see myself going on dates with the dolphin. There's not a helper to be found. And so what does God do? God puts Adam to sleep. He reaches into his flesh and he pulls out a rib and he forms a woman. And the Bible says there in verse 23 that Adam was in a deep sleep and he woke up. And what does Adam do? He busts in a song. It's a poem. He busts out right there on the spot. He starts talking roses are red, violets are blue right there on the spot. He says, this is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She was taken from me. This is woman. And I kind of feel that instinct in him where he goes, woman, right? Like he's excited. This is my helper. This is what God has made. This is what God has formed. In fact, the Hebrew word for man is ish, and the Hebrew word for woman is ishiah, which is the idea that woman came from man, that they are joined together. And I want you to notice a word here. Look in the text right there. The Bible says up around verse 18 and 19, there was not a helper found. Now that word is important when we understand this idea of partnership. Why is it important? Because Moses, who's recording the book of Genesis for us, Moses writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the the books of Torah, the Decalogue, he writes these for us and and he puts them together. and, And so Moses is recording this and he uses the word helper led by the Spirit to record the story of Adam and Eve and he uses the word helper. And if we're not careful in our society where we hire help, we could think this means a lesser position. We hire some help to cut our grass. We hire some help to put up a building. We hire some help to help tidy up our home. So if we're not careful, we can look at this text and say, well, Adam needed a servant, so God made a woman. Now, hold on. That ain't what I'm saying, right? Mama didn't raise no fool. Just hold on. The word helper here in the Hebrew is the same word that Moses would use in Psalm 30 where he describes the Lord is my helper. Now, I'm certain that Moses was not calling God his yard boy. He was saying, I need him. I won't make it without him. I'm not good enough by myself. So notice the beauty of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. God looks at Adam and says, Adam, I've made you You're without sin, you're governing over the garden, but there's a hole in your being, and instead of God filling that hole himself, he creates woman and says, now I'm gonna give you a partner, a helper. In marriage, the beauty of marriage is this partnership that God has ordained. Dennis Rainey would write it this way in his marriage material. He would say, God chose to bring a man and a woman together in order to accomplish as one what they could not accomplish alone. 
verse 19 or 18. Man was not fit to be alone. He needed a helper. So marriage is this sacred partnership that God put together. In fact, if you read the Hebrew carefully, some scholars argue that Adam is actually, or Moses in his writing, is making the argument that God made one woman for one man. That he fit them together. That somewhere there is a rib for each of us. That this is the idea that it's so special that God put it together. And so we find that marriage is a partnership. Number two, in the story of the first marriage, we find that marriage is for protection. That in this partnership, they're going to protect one another. Particularly here, we mean sexual protection. Look with me at the text. He says these words in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. Your Bible might say cleave, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What was taken out of Adam is now brought back to Adam. They are made one flesh. This is both symbolic and spiritual, emotional, but certainly physical. And how do we know? Look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. There is this idea that God has designed, that He made us, and He places us in this partnership of marriage, and one of the overarching reasons for this partnership of marriage is for physical intimacy. But the reason for physical intimacy, and there are many, and we'll get to those in a moment, but one of the overarching reasons for that is that you can cleave together in order to face a world that's trying to rip you apart. And when we think about sexual desire, the world is constantly trying to attempt us and pull us away from what is good. And so he says, Adam, I've given you this woman. Eve, I've given you this man. You can now cleave together in order to battle the sexual temptation that's around you. The Apostle Paul would write it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He would say, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, that's cleaving together in the flesh, and likewise the wife to her husband. This is to guard you from sin. So when we think about the idea of adultery, which we'll get to in a moment, we understand that God first created in the marriage a safety valve to guard against it. And that is this cleaving together, this protection of sexual ethics in the marriage. Number three, marriage is for pleasure. Notice with me what we find here in the text. Verse 23, then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, they will hold fast to one another, leaving their family, cleaving together, becoming one flesh. Verse 25, and they were naked and not afraid. Adam did not have to be convinced to go to Eve. God didn't walk up with Eve and go, here's your partner, and Adam say, hey, can we do better? Can we try again? No. He was overwhelmed with what God had made for him. Why? Because listen to me now, brothers and sisters, and I don't want you to miss this because we're not going to be vulgar. We're not going to get lost in the weeds, but let's be clear about biblical ethics and sexuality. God made you. He made your hormones. He made your nerves. He made your body parts. He designed you. He designed marriage. He designed you and your spouse to enjoy one another together. This is God's design. We may allow the world to take it into vulgar places, but we will stand and say clearly, this is what God has done. 
He has made it this way. And we know by surveying the scripture that he desires for it to be pleasurable between a husband and a wife. We see this in the Song of Solomon where they describe themselves as lovers of one another and they are enamored with each other's bodies and the way that they communicate to one another. Not in a vulgar sense, but in a beautiful poetic sense. Even in Proverbs chapter five, we learn from Solomon where he says, enjoy your wife in her youth. He's claiming to his son, this is good. I often like to giggle and chuckle at the Song of Solomon because they are writing about things that they see. It's interesting when he describes his wife's teeth as sheep on a hill. I'm not sure that's the way I would go. I don't feel like that's going to be the right anniversary card. I don't think that's the right way. Or he describes her, her body as gazelle bouncing down the lane. I'm not sure that's the way to go. But I understand we might use different words. Baby, you like a pretty eight-point buck just running down the road. You crank my engine like a monster truck and getting in the mud, right? You're so pretty, I want to kiss you like a big mouth bass, right? We would use the same thing. But the idea here is, is that we have this whole book of the Bible where God is telling us, and listen, moms, dads, grandparents, hear me now. Children, teenagers, listen. Marriage is good. Sex is good. God designed it. Let us not let the world hijack it. Let us be clear about it. It is good. God designed it. He made it. It's important for the relationship. Now, if you have protection in sexual ethics and you have pleasure in sexual actions, then it's pretty clear what the fourth thing is going to come from marriage, and that's procreation. That when a husband and wife are cleaving together, when they are enjoying one another, then naturally, barring some medical issue, naturally, children are going to be born to that relationship. In fact, we find in Genesis chapter 1, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We learn all through the Bible that we are to have them. In the, in, the, um, in the Proverbs, we learn that the children are a blessing. In the Psalms, we hear about God making children in their womb. And so we understand that one of the purposes for marriage, especially the sexual relations of marriage, is to produce life. Why would God do it that way? Why would he not just make children grow under cabbages in your yard? Why, why would he produce it in that way? Well, brothers and sisters, because God is good. God says, I'm giving you marriage. I'm giving you a spouse, I'm giving you sexual relations for your protection and your pleasure, and I'm going to bless this in such a way that I'm going to use it to create life. What a blessing. What a covenant of God. Now, I wish he could, you know, create life where they go to bed on time, but that's, we're working on it. But the idea is, is that, he, that this is what he does. He rewards the marriage by blessing it with life. Not death, life. This is the beauty of marriage. And that leads finally to the last idea from Genesis that we need to see quickly before we move to the covenant of, or the command of adultery. And that's simply this, marriage is for proclamation. So listen to me now because here's the apex and the climax and the, and the, and the very top of marriage. Here's why God designed marriage. One, he designed marriage because Adam and Eve needed helpers. They needed to reflect God's glory even better. Just as the moon reflects the sun, I'm to reflect God. But in my marriage relationship, I can better reflect the Lord, Right? Two, in that marriage, I have sexual protection and pleasure and procreation all wrapped into that relationship. And then finally, as we're walking with the Lord, as we're forgiving one another, loving one another, being patient with one another, as we're having life born through our marriage, what are we doing? We're proclaiming the goodness of God. 
We're declaring the gospel. How do I know this? In Genesis chapter 1, it says this, I will make them in my image, man and woman, in my image, meaning they will reflect me. So yes, I can reflect God in my singleness, and God has called some to singleness. Some of you find yourself in singleness, and you're not less of a person. You're not disqualified. God is all you need. But in his sovereignty, when he brings a husband and wife together, he is declaring they can reflect my image even greater. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 5 that the marriage relationship is to look like the church and Christ. It is the gospel that we find. What better place to display the gospel than in the marriage? Where else do you see give and take and forgiveness and loving your brother and sacrifice and serving your neighbor? In the marriage. You find the gospel, the kingdom, in marriage. John Piper would write it this way. He would say these words. He would say, the most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is God's doing. And the ultimate thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it's for God's glory. Our marriages are to be for His glory. Now, we have surveyed the sacredness of marriage. I have showed you just in one passage very quickly how important marriage is to the design of God, the way God designed it. So now that we have the weight of Genesis 1 and 2, we can go back now and understand the, the, um, the crime that is the commandment to commit adultery. When you see all that God has put into marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, now you understand how His righteous anger will burn against those who break that covenant. Because He has designed it in such a beautiful way and that it is His goodness that He gives to us. And marriage is not evil, it's not punishment, it's not a ball and chain, it is a blessing from God. And it is good and it is worth it. And it is for His glory. And so as He's designed it, now we feel the weight of when we break it. And so let us see the second part of the sermon. And that's simply this. To obey the seventh commandment, we have to have a biblical view of marriage, but now we must have a biblical view of sexual sin. To do this, I want to look at three places where we find the use of sexual sin that will help us understand the seventh commandment. The first one is the seventh commandment. So first, I want us to see the sexual sin of adultery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. The word literally means you shall not introduce a third party into your marriage. You shall not step outside your marriage, your covenant. That, that's, that is a sin. That is breaking the vow. That you are not to have sexual relations with anyone other than your spouse, that it is breaking the covenant found in Genesis 1 and 2. God said to Adam and Eve, cleave to one another, enjoy one another, make life together with one another, but do not do it outside of that relationship. And so to commit adultery is to do a couple of things. When we affirm the seventh commandment, we are affirming first that marriage is between one man and one woman. We are affirming, secondly, that that marriage is to be seen by a lifelong commitment to fidelity to one another. Until death do you part. And then third, we are saying very clearly that there is never to be an intrusion into that two-person partnership. Adultery is to break the covenant. Do you know, in the marriage ceremony, the tradition of kissing is to show the sign of the covenant? So when you're getting married, and some of you have gotten married before, I, I'm, I'm married and I like her, and we got married, and so we, uh, we got married on August the 3rd, I got it right this time. For those of you that don't remember, several Sundays ago I said the wrong anniversary date on TV, so it replayed for three Sundays, the wrong, never mind. Alright, so when you're in a marriage, and you say I do, and you pass the rings, the minister will say you may now kiss the bride. 
And what he is doing is he is showing the congregation and the witnesses that the marriage is being sealed by physical relations. Now, we certainly do not go further than kissing in our public place. We do that alone in our homes. So the kiss is a forthcoming of the covenant relation, of sexual relations that will sign the covenant when the couple is alone. That's the picture. So when you commit adultery, listen now, here's where I'm going. When you commit adultery, you are at your marriage ceremony, kissing your wife, sealing your vows, and then you're introducing someone else into the ceremony. And it's completely broken what Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us about marriage. Adultery is to intrude into the covenant of God. So serious was this sin that in the Old Testament, stoning to death was its punishment. In fact, it was so serious that it was a community decision. If my spouse had committed adultery and I wanted to go to the community leaders and the elders in the Old Testament and say, show mercy, please don't stone her, I wouldn't even have the authority to do that. The community would have to decide. It was an act against the state, if you will, to commit adultery in the Old Testament. Why? Because it is breaking the very covenant of God when he brought two people together in his creation, before sin. And also, just think about it this way. Whenever we see adultery, we see divorce, we see brokenness, we see children that are scarred, grandparents that are confused, communities that are weakened, and a church witness that's falling. It tears apart society. So God is serious about this sin. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, it tells the church, let adultery not even be named among you. Let it not be a sin that is even something you're dealing with. Walk away from it. So when we see the seventh commandment, we must see that adultery is this grievous sin. But there are two more places in the Bible where I want us to see this sexual ethic. The first one is in Matthew chapter seven. Jesus is going to use the word sexual immorality. He's going to say these words in Matthew chapter seven. Just let me read them to you. We're moving quickly this morning. Matthew chapter seven, Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter seven, verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within and out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covenantiness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile a person. And so he is telling us now, he's using the word adultery in that sentence. He's brought adultery into the conversation. And he says, this is sexual sin. It comes out of your heart. And it will defile you. It will cause you to be at odds with God and cost you your life. But in that same sentence, he uses the word sexual immorality. So pairing it with adultery, he now also uses the word sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. And it literally means when you translate it, any form of sexual deviousness that's not included in husband and wife in their marriage. This would mean that fornication, which is sex before marriage or outside of marriage, this would mean adultery, this would mean bestiality, homosexuality, any form of sexual relations that is not one husband and one wife in a married covenant relationship is now committing sexual immorality. So Jesus takes the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and includes in it not just the intrusion of someone into your marriage, but any form of sexual sin is now breaking. And so he raises it. This is sexual ethics. So why do I bring that up? Because some of you in here aren't married. Some of you are not ready to be married. Sexual sin is sexual sin. Some of you are single again. Some of you find yourself 
committing sin, you might say, well, Pastor, I'm not guilty of adultery. I've never, ever physically touched anybody other than my spouse. Well, Jesus says in sexual immorality that there are lots of forms of sexual sin that we can be tempted towards. So he pulls us there. You know what's interesting? It's really sad. When someone uh, performs a wonderful song, they can win a Grammy. When someone acts in a, in a really good movie or something, they can win an Oscar. They have award shows for that. Do you know that they currently have award shows for pornography movies? They celebrate and gather together and give out awards for the performers and the actors in pornography-laced movies. Do you know what the Bible says about that? What man called good, God called evil. Brothers and sisters, it runs rampant in our society, and it is sexual sin. And let me just speak very clearly, first of all, to you moms and dads, grandparents in the room. We try to find ourselves avoiding this conversation because it's awkward and because the world has made it dirty and vulgar. And I would submit to you that God created marriage. God created sex. God loves it and has placed it into our life. And he has a uh, perfect way for us to enjoy his blessings. But listen to me now and let me be clear. If you don't talk about it, the world will teach them. It will teach them and they will learn. They will learn, well, if I do this, but I don't do that, I'm probably okay. If I go this far, but not this far, I'm probably okay. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, all sexual immorality is sin. All of it. Now let me show you one more place, and then we'll get to the end. And that's simply this. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus quotes this commandment. And he uses another word. Remember, we're building an idea of a sexual ethic that the Bible teaches. First, it tells us not to commit adultery. Then it tells us to have nothing to do with sexual morality. And now in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus quotes this commandment, he says, now don't even have lustful intent in your heart. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus takes the commandment and elevates it. He raises it up. You might say, well, pastor, I have never had physical relationships with anybody other than my spouse. Jesus says, good. What about your heart? What about your eyes? What about your fantasies and desires? What about your reading material? What about what you're looking at? Just like in the sixth commandment where we can commit murder in our heart with anger, Jesus now wants to survey our heart and says, listen, it's not what you do with your hands that defiles you. It's because your heart is sick with sin. You are tempted and pulled and move away from all those things. And so now he moves us into this idea of what sexual sin looks like. And he says lustful intent. The word lustful intent means to covet or long after. He says it's one thing to see someone and say, I'm attracted to them. They're beautiful. They, they, uh, they're someone I would like to talk to. That's one thing. But to linger and to look and to fantasize and to seek after, now we've moved over into lust and our heart is now committing adultery. Brothers and sisters, all day long, our hearts can commit adultery if we're not careful. You might say, well, how, how does this happen? Oh, it happens. It happens because the internet is running rampant and we have it on our smartphones and our iPads and our work computers and we can click on this and click on that and click on this. We can even scroll down Facebook and linger too long on a picture we shouldn't be lingering on. We can find ourselves filling our eyes with lustful desires. You might say, well, I, I'm not prone to that. I don't get pulled that way. Maybe it's just too much flirtation with a new coworker. Maybe it's a little a fantasy about this over here or this over here. Listen to me now. Jesus says every time you lust in your heart, you are committing 
adultery. You are breaking the marriage vows. Don't tell me Jesus is not serious about sexual sin. We may act like it's no big thing because the world is flooded with it and everybody deals with it and that's just what it means. That's just what it's like to be a man. That's just what it's like to be a teenager. Everybody goes through these phases. Brothers and sisters, there's no place in Scripture where Jesus says you can go have your sin, you're just going through a phase. He tells us this is a battle for your heart. This is not good. D.L. Moody would say this, lust is the devil's counterfeit to love. He would go on to write in that same sermon that lust is the fastest way for a man to find himself in hell. He moves that way. So brothers and sisters, we must do something about this. So this leads to the application of the sermon. If I am to obey the seventh commandment, I must have a biblical view of marriage. I must have a biblical view of sexual ethics. And this means no adultery. And this means no sexual immorality of any kind. And this means even guarding my heart from sexual sin. So I've got to go to war. So what does that mean? Well, that means simply this. You've got to have a biblical view of the war. You've got to know we're at war. You are at war with sexual sin. Just we're at war with greed and money and anger. We are at war with sexual sin. And when I think about war of sexual sin, I think about three people. And hear me now, I'm almost done. I want you to stay with me because I want to give you lifelines of hope now. I imagine as I walk through this text, here's what's happening in the room. There are some of you that have physically committed adultery and you feel guilty and you feel the scars of the past coming up. There are some of you that are entangled in pornography and it's weighing you down. And even now the spirit is making you feel awkward because of conviction. There are some of you that are not married and you're behaving sexually impure and the spirit of God is now laying on your heart. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you hope for the war. And so I think about three types of people. First, there are those in the room that are tempted. They're tempted. You haven't quite dove in yet, but you're playing with it. You're playing with sin. You're trying to see how close you can get. You're lingering a little bit too long. You're putting yourself in positions where it's a little bit more dicey and fun. You, you went and purchased that new smartphone and you know you can find what you want to find on it. You know there's a part of your day where you're going to be left alone. And, and so you're tempted now. You're being drawn towards it. Don't tell me Satan doesn't know how to tempt us. Marriage is God's perfect design, so you know that Satan is after it. And so you're being tempted. So what are you to do with that temptation? Well, the Apostle Paul would tell us these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Everybody deals with temptations, what he says. You're not, you're not special. Satan's attacking you like he attacks everyone else. Your flesh, your heart is broken like everyone else. So what are you to do with it? God has been faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you see what I see in that passage? That God knows you'll be tempted, and he's already surrounded you with the means in order to defeat the temptation. He's equipping you to fight it. If you're tempted, there are things you can do. One, you can pray to the God who sees everything. Two, you can read the living word of God that it's the sword for battle. Three, you can gather with the church of God in order to fight those temptations. But let me just press it even more real quickly in application. We just celebrated the anniversary of D-Day, and we know that that was a horrific and heroic day in the life of our country and in the world. But we understand that when those soldiers got off of those boats, there was much training that went into that. They learn how to shoot and take commands and use equipment and advance. They learn enemy game plans. And, and there's a lot of training that goes into be a soldier. You don't drop a brand new person in the middle of war. You train them. Why? Because if you drop a, a brand new person in the middle of war, they're not going to make it. They've got to have practice. They've got to have training. 
Brothers and sisters, I think that if you wait to fight the temptation when you're in the war, you'll lose it. But if we start now, if we say, I'm going to be tempted at this place or this time or at this area or usually in this part of my life is when I'm tempted, then right now when I'm sober-minded, I'm going to begin to use the things that God has given me to fight those temptations. Let me just give you a couple of examples. A couple of examples in our own home. In the Horton home, we have filtering on all of our phones and computers. It's called Covenant Eyes. You can Google it, look it up. It's a great service. We pay for filtering. Keeps our computers protected. We don't pay for channels that might show things that we shouldn't see. You won't find HBO or Cinemax in our home because those are temptations. Before the war, we fought the battle. Even in my own life, I have a good friend of mine, a pastor friend that we talk or meet on a weekly basis in order to confess sin and pray together and hold each other accountable. Why? Because when I get in the war, I want to be prepared. And so, brothers and sisters, some of you are feeling really tempted, and I'm encouraging you, dig in, make a battle plan, and start fighting. There's a second group of people in the room, and that's those of you that are tangled. And what I mean by tangled is simply this. You've already fallen in, and you are head over heels in sexual sin, and you think that God doesn't really care, or it's no big deal, or everybody's doing it, and so this little thing's not going to bother anybody. I'm not hurting anyone. I've not left my wife. I've not left my husband. I'm just sampling. I'm just dabbling. I'm over here, and, and you've grown cold to the Lord's conviction over sexual ethics. You think it's no big deal. Maybe you're in the room, and you're dating someone, and you say, well, all the teenagers are doing it, so we're not doing anything they're not doing. This is natural. This is what teenagers do. It's no big deal. Listen to me now. You are tangled in sin. You are cold-hearted towards the Lord. And hear the words of the Lord in Galatians. You will reap what you sow. God will not be mocked. If you continue down the road of sexual sin, you can survey the New Testament and hear the apostles saying it will lead to destruction and death and damnation. You cannot serve the Lord and serve your flesh. And so run from those entanglements. Cry out for Mercy, do not let them pull you down. Some of you are so entangled. And you need to come clean before the Lord and get right. And that leads me to the third person. And I'm going to use the word trapped here. And when I mean trapped, I mean someone who's so weighted down by their guilt that they feel like there's no way out. In fact, some of you might just be so embarrassed that you don't even know where to start. You don't want to confess to your wife about your sin. You don't want to tell your husband about your inappropriate relationship. You don't, you don't want to tell anybody that you, you're a slave to this computer or this device. And, and so you feel trapped. You feel smothered by your sexual sin. And you think there's no hope. Just this week, I read an article of a pastor who took his own life because it came out that he's had inappropriate sexual relations with a teenager. He felt so trapped in his sexual sin that instead of going home to his wife and children and his congregation and asking for help, he took his own life because he felt trapped. He felt hopeless. He felt like there was nowhere to look for help. Can I just give you three examples and we'll close? You are not past help, brothers and sisters. There are three examples I think of of Jesus dealing with people who are caught in sexual sin. The first example I think of is the woman at the well where she is caught with a man who's not her husband and she's been married many times over. And the Bible says that she meets Jesus at the well because it's in the middle of the day and that's when sinners go out because she doesn't want to be around other people and he confronts her about her sin. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't overlook it. He confronts her and he tells her about his sin and he comes clean about it. She comes clean about it. Excuse me. 
And then he looks at her in all of her sin, and instead of picking up the stone and stoning her to death, he tells her these wonderful words. I will give you living water. You've been trying to drink from all these broken wells of sexual and marriage fulfillment, but I'll give you living water. There's hope, brothers and sisters, right where you are for living water. I think of a second time where Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's in their home and he's eating. And this woman who is a woman of the night, the Bible says she's well known. People have used her services. She comes in and begin to wipe his feet and wash him with his tears. And the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees literally think to themselves, if he knew who this dirty woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And then Jesus rebukes them. And then he turns to the woman and he says to the woman, woman, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. And then there's a third one. There is a woman caught in adultery. She's brought before Jesus with the crowd and the mob. They have stones in their hand and they're ready to stone her because she's committed and broken the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery and death should be the punishment according to the Old Testament. And Jesus looks at the crowd and says, Ye who has without sin cast the first stone and all of them knowing that they're all sinners in their hearts. They've all lusted. They've all broken the seventh commandment whether it be with their hands or their heart. They drop their stones and they walk away and Jesus looks at the woman, the woman who should have been stoned to death because of her sin of adultery, sexual sin, broken the very covenant of Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus looks at her and says woman where are those that are condemning you and she says there are none and Jesus says to her neither I condemn you go and sin no more listen sexual sin is rampant and all around us but there is hope there is forgiveness there is the gospel there is a God who says you are now a new creation There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So listen to me. Men, listen to me. Confess it to your Lord. Confess it to your wife and get some help. Women, listen to me. Tell your husband of your struggle and get some help. Teenagers, stop it. Confess it and get some help. Why? Because the gospel is good and Christ desires for purity and marriage is wonderful. But if you don't do it God's way, you will reap what you sow. Let us seek the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? Because of our desire to be good citizens and social distancing, I'm going to allow you to, I'm not going to allow you, we're going to, because of God's wonderful grace, use the spot where you're sitting as an altar. And so right where you are, right where you sit, would you pray to the Lord? Would you ask Him to search you and know you? Would you ask Him to point out to you any area in your life where you're breaking the seventh commandment? Whether it be the physical act of adultery, whether it be finding yourself in sexual immorality outside of marriage, whether it be lustful intent of the heart. Would you just confess it right now to the Lord? 
As you're confessing to the Lord, let me, let me ask you to pray for this. Would you, would you pray for courage? Because you need to tell somebody. You might need to tell your spouse. You might need to put some distance between your boyfriend or girlfriend. You might need to tell your mom and dad. So would you pray for courage? Finally, this morning, would you ask the Lord to give you a plan? We didn't read it, but in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, I tell you, if you've committed adultery in your heart with lustful intent, he goes on to say right after that, Matthew chapter 5, you can read it later today, he goes on to say right after that, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. What he's literally saying is, whatever is causing you to sin, cut it off. If it's that smartphone in your pocket, throw it away. If it's the computer at your workstation, get rid of it. If it's a job where you're in a flirtatious relationship with a coworker, walk away. Make a plan. Ask the Lord to help you. It's worth it. Let me close with this and I'm going to pray. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Can I just tell you this? God designed marriage. God designed sexual relations in marriage. And when it's done God's way, honoring the Lord, He blesses. It's good. It's right. It's worth it. Father, we pray now for courage in the days to come and the hours. I pray that people would respond to your word and do what is right. Father, remind us you will not be mocked and you see everything. Let us not fake it in church and break the commandment on Monday. Give us courage. In Jesus' name, amen. The best way to finish our time of worship is to stand and sing Jesus paid it all. Let's remember his grace this morning.